welcome to the ACO Show. Today, Josh and Brian welcome Dr. Andy Ryan, Professor of Health Management and Policy at the University of Michigan, Director of the University's Center for Evaluating Health Reform, and co-author of a recent paper which looked at the evidence of value-based care among commercial health insurance contracts. Welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel, joined by my co-host, Brian Chiglinski, who's Allidade Senior Director of Communications, and we are delighted to welcome Dr. Andy Ryan. Dr. Ryan is the Professor of Health Management and Policy at the University of Michigan and Director of the University's Center for Evaluating Health Reform. Andy, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. What we wanted to talk to you today um, was about the paper that you and several colleagues published in the April 2022 issue of Health Affairs titled Value-Based Payment Models in the Commercial Insurance Sector, a Systematic Review. Um, so why don't we just start off with what made you want to look at this? Sure. As you know, Josh, there's been lots of interest in understanding the effectiveness of different turn of payment models in healthcare, but most of this research has been done, public sector programs, particularly Medicare. And we were interested in understanding the evidence from commercial insurance and to see the degree to which it um, responded with what we've seen in Medicare. Just to add something to that is we would expect the directionality of findings to be pretty similar, but there's certain tools that commercial payers have that Medicare doesn't. There's also certain disadvantages that commercial payers have that Medicare doesn't. So we want to see overall how results compared between you know, commercial and uh, public settings. Yeah, I think the, the study, especially this kind of review of the literature, really attracted our attention at Allidade. We uh, work with a number of different value-based care programs across public and private payers, and we've, for the past few years, done a lot of these value-based care programs with commercial insurers as well. And so I think the entire system is kind of learning how these programs work, which ones. And I think what you see in the commercial side is a real kind of laboratory of different value-based care programs because you have so many different commercial payers trying out different models and different types of programs uh, within themselves. This study, obviously the comprehensiveness of it was, was really impressive. It was 59 studies, if I'm right, that you guys took a look at. Overall, like broad headlines to figure out like exactly the, the categories you were looking at. Could you tell us a little bit about the different types of value-based care programs and models that you took a look at and kind of how they differed? Yeah, absolutely. So we looked at just the, what we call like supply side models, brands. These are programs that are really primarily focused on provider behavior, not targeting, you know, members directly through things like high deductible plans or narrow networks, but rather programs that tried to change provider behavior through various incentives. Kind of buckets we organized programs into were pay for performance, which is basically additional payment to providers conditional on meeting certain pre-specified quality metrics. We also looked at bundled or episode-based payment, which typically are um, these episodes that are triggered by an inpatient hospitalization and then providers are given incentives to manage care over some specified post-discharge period. We then looked at shared savings and shared risk models, which are population-based models in which 
certain group of providers will have accountability for managing the spending and often quality for population of members. And then finally, we looked at for partial capitation, which is similar to shared savings and shared risk, except that can be thought of as like full risk and that the attribution is like a pre-specified and prospective. Those are the different models that I could say we looked at papers between 2000 and 2020. Did you have any guesses? Did you have a horse you were betting on of the payment models? So I'll tell you, Josh, I mean, we've done a lot of research on pay for performance programs and so on the Medicare side and I had a good feel for like what that literature looked like. I think personally had less of a, um, you know, less knowledge of some of these other models. And just like everyone else, I tend to think of those models with greater downside risk to providers are those that are more likely to engender the kind of behavior change and reduction in utilization, reduction in spend that we're kind of looking for. So the things like the shared savings, shared risk, and the um, capitation style models, I was more optimistic that, that they would have larger effects, particularly with respect to spending and utilization. The paper took a look at three aspects in particular, right? Quality, spending, and utilization, and kind of comparing those across these models. Very high level what did you guys see? What would be the headline takeaway from this research and this, this review of the literature that you found? So I'd say that with respect to quality, we've, we tended to find that these payment models improve quality, both the pay for performance models and the shared savings, shared risk models tended to improve quality. Whereas with spending, it was and utilization, it was much more mixed. I think it was about half of the studies showed mixed positive or positive effects for spending. Uh, same thing with utilization. So I think overall, we saw more evidence that these programs improved quality and less uh, persuasive evidence that they were associated with reductions in spending or utilization. I don't mean this as a fault of the paper. You can only measure quality as providers and healthcare systems are defining it and setting up standards and outcomes. But we know that sometimes when people improve quality, what they've really done is increase their documentation of the thing that was done anyway, or they may increase the data flow where you, know, you now prove that you did the thing. And so when you read about people improving or not improving quality, I, I, all, I sort of look askance at that a little bit. Like, did they really improve the quality of care for patients or did they just improve the documentation that they were incentivized to do? Uh, and again, you can only work with the definitions that everybody's working with. You know, I don't expect yeah. your team to, to solely stand up a new quality system that's, that's deeply meaningful. Well, if I can just react to that, Josh, I mean, I think you're 100% right. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the, the measures are, they can often measure kind of like clinical documentation and then moving on to process and then intermediate outcomes. And so you're 100% right. A lot of the, it's not like we're measuring like, you know, improvements in life expectancy. You know, we're measuring things like screening management of different patients getting recommended hemoglobin checks if they have diabetes, stuff like that. Of course, it's important. But we've seen from a lot of the literature that improvement in some of these process measures often doesn't necessarily drive 
uh, outcome improvements. So I, I agree. I'm, I'm in general pretty skeptical of that a lot of the measures that we've used and studied are really going to get us to healthier patients. And if I can just take a, like a, a step back here, I think that's one of the reasons why the field moved away from PAVE performance, because the original theory of PAVE performance was that, okay, we're going to pay for better quality, and then providers are going to hire, provide higher quality care. It's going to make patients healthier, and that in turn is going to reduce healthcare spending. And that absolutely did not happen, has not happened, didn't occur anywhere. And so, you know, I, I'd say even when quality has improved, uh, in these measures, whether it's actually improved patient health is like really quite dubious. I think the best evidence is from this uh, alternative quality contract in Massachusetts, which I think is in, in many ways an exemplar shared savings program. And, um, you know, they had very powerful incentives for quality and, they, um, I think there's pretty good evidence that they approved uh, some of these intermediate measures, like I want to say blood pressure control, and things that are more meaningful to patients. But that is honestly, um, you know, unusual in the literature. And, and typically we're looking at measures that are compliance with evidence-based practice. Yeah, I think... Uh... Pulling back a little bit, one of the things that stuck out in the paper to me was there was a section where he talked about the fact that there was much less research done on programs with downside risk than programs that were either upside only or just didn't involve risk at all. That aside, are there other parts of the literature that you really wish more people would focus studies on and, and focus research efforts into? Yeah, Absolutely. I think two things stand out to me. Number one, big missing piece of this literature is this uh, kind of net savings or net spend plans. Because pretty much in, in almost all these studies, the researchers look at effects on medical claims spending is because that's what people are able to observe. But uh, the models, Many of the models involve payments plans back to providers. And so we've seen this a lot in CMS programs that a program, an alternative payment model may be associated with a reduction in medical spend. But after you account for all the payments that go back to providers, it costs the, the payers more, it costs you know, cost CMS more than, uh, than they saved. And honestly, in this literature, there's almost no studies that were, that looked at that. The, again, I'll go back to the alternative uh, quality contract and research by Zeri Song and colleagues that did, that's to my knowledge, the only uh, program that did look at these net payments these net differences in spend. I think that's something that's super important and was, wasn't really represented in the literature. And then something else I'll just mention, Brian, is like that we, we discussed it a little bit was what are these kind of key enabling factors? Because as I'm sure you guys know, there's so much heterogeneity in these programs and just like what's the provider environment? What are provider capabilities at baseline? What's the incentive structure? 
how are the targets set, you know, all these things. And that's the richness about model information. You know, it's typically unavailable as you're reviewing the papers. But then also the studies aren't really constructed and neither was our review to really pull apart what are these enabling factors, both from a, from the design of alternative payment models um, and also from a perspective of provider capabilities, just like what are these features that enable success, that drive success? I think that that's something I'd really, we really want to know and it's incredibly important. And it, it's hard to, to say anything too specific from these reviews, you know? We see authors again and again talk about the importance of governance, the importance of IT, the importance of feedback. And I think that's, it makes sense, it's true, but we couldn't evaluate those things quantitatively. And so, so anyway, I just think those are really important factors that I kind of wish we knew more about. One thing that your paper I thought very smartly points out is you have these mixed findings, um, you know, and you're looking at different models. Many of the physicians were in overlapping models at the same time. So they might've been in a bundled model. They might've been in a fee-for-service. They might've been, um, you know, upside downside all at the same time. And it's really hard to tell what any one model does when people are trying to take care of patients in all these different models. And Allidade is a company that, that started primarily in the Medicare shared savings space. And we have the hypothesis that the more of our physicians, patients that are in similar contracts, the better they'll be able to deliver high quality care if they just have one workflow, one set of outcomes that they're going for. But it's just a hypothesis at this point. Are you familiar with anything that supports that factually, that people will get better outcomes if you can get everybody in the same value-based model for the same physician? It's a fascinating question. And I think it's very important for the reasons that you mentioned, because it's not just, we're not in an environment where providers are doing one thing and, and then we can study that one thing, you know, they're doing all kinds of things. So we have studied this in the context of both hospitals and physician practices. And so some research from our group tried to examine this exact issue, like whether hospitals that did more stuff, whether that resulted in greater, what we were looking at was the effects of readmission. So basically if they were part of, you know, there's sort of certain mandatory programs like hospital readmission reduction program, but then other hospitals, they vary with respect to the meaningful use incentives and they vary, they may have been part of bundle payment or ACO type models. And, you know, that research found that as hospitals did more stuff that there was a cumulative impact. And this exact question, Josh, in the context of primary care models as well, studying practices that were part of PCMH and MSSP programs. And, you know, in this case, we didn't really find evidence that, you know, practices that did both these programs together you know, had uh, greater improvement in quality or spending reductions. And I mean, I, but I will say that it, it's just tough to study. It's hard to put together a longitudinal panel of practices. It's hard to know exactly what else practices were exposed to. For instance, we didn't look at any commercial contracts here. So, so anyway, you know, I think there's 
a strong conceptual reason to think that your hypothesis is correct. And to the extent that it's incorrect or it hasn't been borne out, I think it might speak just as much to the fact that the programs that are implemented historically haven't necessarily been that aligned. And that's just been a, a broad problem about practices being exposed to a bunch of stuff that might not line up exactly. No, that's absolutely right. Even when we can get them into similar contracts, the quality measures don't align one-to-one. -one. So it, you end up adding quality measures, not, um, not getting more of the same. Getting to some of the recommendations at the end of the piece, you, you all spoke, obviously, one of them, uh, a big one was just more research needs to be done, that there just isn't, you know, the rigorous analysis of commercial value-based care space in the same way that there is in the public program value-based care space, in the same way that there is in a lot of other uh, healthcare programs. It's still, still a relatively new area that we're learning a lot about. But I, I did notice one of the recommendations, as you pointed out, was commercial programs that are aligned better with public programs seem to see better results. And so we talked about that a little bit, aligning quality measures. I just, I, I wondered, is there an example of that kind of alignment that you guys saw in the literature, uh, maybe a program uh, statewide or, or national that, that seemed to capture that alignment really well between the commercial and public space? Brian, we did, this is, this is a, a recommendation that's, that I have to admit is based more on like common sense than is on evidence that we saw. So, um, yeah. so, so, you know, uh, it, it's more just kind of like, you know, the Josh theory of incentives and alternative payment, you know? Um, so we didn't, I will say that when we talk to plants, you hear a lot about the importance of Medicare Advantage these days. And you, you hear because of the, the importance of that to plans and then the plans are trying to pass that through uh, to providers and more and more. Um, this is becoming a bigger part of the marketplace. I do think that there is alignment that's occurring behind the STARS program that it just kind of, makes sense that that's where plans would focus their efforts and orient commercial programs, at least on the quality side, in that direction. You know, I, that, that's come out of conversations that you know, we've had with, with plans. You know, we didn't see that in this literature. But then again, the, the rise of MA has been particularly dramatic and, and honestly, quite recent years and our study looked at a much uh, longer time period. So that is one place that I think is more likely commercial programs will go. It just makes sense if plans, as plans become more focused on MA, that that will be a, a clear point of emphasis for the rest of their business, or at least a kind of like default that would orient uh, other activity, particularly with respect to quality uh, measurement. It makes total sense as you're saying it. Uh, Brian actually interviewed Rick Gilfillan on this show about the Medicare Advantage money machine, that, yeah. that it would be the profit motive that ultimately aligns the, the quality measures. You know, the, the program with the highest profit margin is ultimately what tunes it up rather than anything necessarily about quality and outcomes 
you, you can see it heading that way as you say it. Mm -hmm. that, that, that sounds right to me. You know, I think as we study these programs, I think that there's certain technical challenges that have taken a long time to appreciate. Just things like target setting, which seems like a simple thing, but turns out to be like really challenging and has taken 15 years, I think, for a lot of us to kind of start to get a handle on how it's gone wrong. And I still see, you know, CMS, you know, research that we're doing with say the bundle payment for care improvement advanced suggests that they're systematically setting targets in a way that's kind of too easy and in some ways systematically wrong and leads to, you know, CMS losses in the program. And I guess my like, point is like all these same design issues are relevant on the commercial side too. It's taken a long time to figure out, I think a lot of the design issues with these programs. I think that's one key point. And then I also think if, if we look across the whole literature you know, the, on the CMS side, the behavioral effects of these APMs Honestly, they haven't been that large. They really haven't. And um, especially you think about the payers, a couple other things here, the payers problem or what they're trying to solve here with reducing spending, that the expectations for provider behavior change in response to these programs should probably be tempered that we haven't seen a ton of it especially when they need to share the savings back to providers, whatever they see. I'm pretty skeptical that there'll be, you know, really large savings for plans as they pursue this. And as a result, I think strategies that are more oriented towards members, particularly around networks and paired with developing high-performance networks in particular, likely to have more potential savings for plans. That's kind of my view. And I think that there's going to be greater emphasis uh, towards some of these creating, rather than trying to get all providers to change in a certain way, creating incentives for members to go to those providers that plans think are more efficient. I think that is where there's greater potential for savings and um, where I think we're going to see more going in that direction. Not to say that that can't be paired with things like downside risk, capitation, it absolutely can. But I think we also know from that not all providers are just capable of being in these risk arrangements or at least managing them the way that plans would like to see that it happen. So so anyway, those are just some kind of larger trends that I'm thinking about and uh, we'll be interested to, to see how the market unfolds. Well, I think this is probably the first podcast that has resulted in Josh having a theory named after him. <laughs> uh, so I'd say this was a pretty successful run. Dr. Andy Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, Professor of Health Management and Policy at the University of Michigan. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time and uh, hope you can join us again sometime. My pleasure, guys. Thanks so much. 
This episode of the ACO Show was produced by Leanne Prieti, Dan Ablin, and Alana Coogan. Our theme music is by Greg Berry. You can find previous episodes on our website, alladay.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.